heartfelt good wishes to all of you on this Uposatha day. And the title for today's Dhamma session is The Strength of Living in Harmony and Support to Develop the Noble Path. And this is based on the Buddha's teaching to the bhikkhus at Kosambi. This is discourse number 48 of the middle length discourses, and it's called the Kosambiya Sutta. So the purpose of examining this particular teaching from the Buddha is to understand the importance of living in harmony and why this is supportive of developing the Noble Eightfold Path. What this means is really that we're able to live with others, with non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, so aloba, adosa, moha. And we grow in our spiritual practice because we make progress in the wholesome and we don't decline or come to a standstill. But mostly we don't decline. As we know, the Buddha praises growth, not decline or a standstill. And the story of the monks at Kosambi shows us what happens if we tolerate quarreling, divisiveness, and cultivating the wrong kinds of speech. When we live in disharmony, we certainly decline because we remain imbued with sensuality and unwholesome states, physical, verbal, and mental. And we'll reap the consequences of living with greed, hatred, and delusion. So this makes it difficult, if not obstructive, to developing the noble path. Now, what we see in the world is it's greatly imbued with conflict, with division, with disharmony. So it's really important to know and see that to maintain healthy boundaries around what we do and our, and our conduct to make sure it's virtuous when we conduct ourselves in the world. And this applies when we're at work, in the community, and of course at home. And this is whether we reside in a monastery or even visit a monastery to stay or in a, in a lay household. So we need to know the importance of putting into practice what we've learned from the Buddha, all the different teachings and to live by the Dhamma, particularly the qualities of metta, generosity, and those virtues that are dear to the noble ones. And of course, we always lead with the noble view, the noble right view. So let's have a look at what we'll cover in this session. As usual, we'll run through our tips and reminders to get the most out of this Dhamma session. We'll take an overview of the Kosambiya Sutta. So what we normally do is we take a quick look at what's the background to the teaching, the architecture, and then why this teaching is important and helpful to our spiritual practice. And then we'll deep dive into the Buddha's actual teaching, the teaching on the harm that comes from quarreling and disputes, and then the advice he gives to the Kosambi monks about the six principles of cordiality or warm-heartedness. And those are the ones that are conducive to harmony, respect, and unity, and of course, supporting the noble path. What we'll find is that our meditations on Vatupama Sutta, Anumana Sutta, Karaniyametta Sutta, even the ones more recently about developing the Noble Eightfold Path, they'll be helpful to connecting particular parts of the Dhamma. And also what we know about the Four Noble Truths and the, and the Four Nutriments. So we'll link those up as well. The other part of the teaching is around the one who practices uh, the Noble Right View, that when you develop certain knowledges and factors, it makes you ready to realize the fruit of stream entry. Or if you have already attained to the stream or further, how to maintain the fruit of that attainment on the path. And so the Buddha goes into this in, in relation specifically to stream entry. 
And then lastly, we'll end with completing the story in a way about what happens to the Buddha and also these bhikkhus of Kosambi and what he says as a Dhammapada verse when he returns after the Vassa, spending it alone, and once he returns to Jetavana Monastery in Savati. So tips and reminders. As usual, keep an open mind. You know, we, we listen to a lot of Buddhist teachings because we want to activate and maintain the right view. So, of course, there's things we've heard before, things we haven't, and also things where it helps us to connect with what we've heard but we haven't really understood. So keeping an open mind helps us to cultivate the right view and make sure we're not veering off the noble path. We also encourage each other not to be too concerned if we don't understand everything. As we've said on many occasions, it can be really frustrating. But until we realize Nibbana, it will always be the case. That will be the challenge for us. But when our spiritual faculties sharpen, as all of us have seen, it becomes possible to penetrate more Dhamma as we go along, to make progress, to see the benefits in our meditation. And, and so it's good to be reasonably okay with not understanding everything. And to just chip away, even a little is enough. And to remember that we're all learners, we're seekers, so we're here to help each other as Kalyanamittas to develop this noble path together. And of course, we apply ourselves to the Buddha's words and Jaini meditation and to connect using our own examples because that's how we get that direct, direct experience, how we um, get insight into the Dhamma. And then the last one is always have good wishes for everyone, everyone that's helped us to be here. And of course, we start from a place of gratitude towards the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, to the noble ones in the pure abodes, the Suddhavasa, and all the friends and family who help and support us to walk this path and those that are on this session today. So we go together. So let's look at the background to this teaching, first of all. And it can be found in a number of places. So there's the Kosambi Jathika, which is Jathika number 428. There's also a very detailed account in the Vinaya, in the Kosambaka Kandaka, so the chapter connected with Kosambi in the Vinaya. And... Many of you may already be familiar with the story of these quarreling monks of Kosambi. It led to a schism in the Sangha. And for those that aren't familiar, you know, this will provide some context and background. So there were these two monks who were living together in the same kuti. And the first of these monks was an expert in the Vinaya and was also very conscientious and sincere. And one day this monk went to the toilet and when he finished, he failed to refill the water pot that held the water for cleaning oneself after using the toilet. So in modern terms, a way of looking at that would be the equivalent of not replacing the toilet roll when the toilet paper is finished. Now, the other monk scolded him and accused him of breaking a rule. And a bitter argument uh, gradually developed. And the second monk insisted that the first had broken a rule and the first insisting that he hadn't. And there was all this other parts of the story, but eventually all the monks in Kosambi, they became embroiled in this argument, taking sides, and the whole community was taken to quarreling and brawling and deep in disputes, stabbing each other with verbal daggers. So that's the words that the Buddha uses. Now, what's incredible about the dispute is how it arose over a very minor issue, a little bit of cleaning water for washing after going to the toilet. 
And it grew into this very large-scale crisis in the Sangha that eventually flowed over and affected the lay followers in Kosambi. The Buddha tried again and again to bring reconciliation, to correct the monks. And each time the monks persisted in saying to the Buddha, wait, Venerable Sir, let the Blessed One, the Lord of the Dhamma, live at ease, devoted to a pleasant abiding here and now. We are the ones who will be responsible for this quarreling, brawling, wrangling and dispute. And when you hear those words, it sounds polite, but really it was their way of telling the Buddha to mind his own business. It was demonstrating that they were clearly more interested in continuing with their quarrels and disputes. And so the Buddha decided to show his disapproval uh, because of their behavior by walking out on them. So that, that happened after this particular teaching. Now, the teaching we're studying today in the Kosambia Sutta is prior to, to him leaving. So when we reflect on this back background, it's good to see how when things happen quite often, often in daily life, like on a small scale, that it can lead to these large-scale quarrels and disputes. And we can see in the world how it eventually leads to wars and, and things of that nature. Now, what we will see is how this is very much living with greed, hatred, and delusion, with hate playing a very strong part in this. But in many respects, the incidents at Kosambi are a reflection of worldly tendencies rather than of renunciants developing the noble path. So the bhikkhus of Kosambi, they were too inclined towards the wrong path with, with body, speech, and mind. They were actually uh, demonstrating far more worldly tendencies and a willingness to, to argue and, and be at odds with each other, taking sides. So very much unwholesome states. So there's much that we can learn from this particular teaching from the Buddha, despite the monks ignoring the Buddha's words. Those monks were not easy to instruct. They were imbued with too many unwholesome and unskillful actions. But unlike those monks, what we want to be just by this alone is to be easy to instruct and to take up this teaching from the Buddha because it will help us to grow and progress. So the architecture for this sutta is really divided into four main parts. You could really even whittle it down to two. But it starts with the discourse where the bhikkhus of Kosambi are quarreling and in dispute and the Buddha gathers them together and asks them if it's true. And then he asks whether they maintain loving kindness towards each other and their answer leaves the Buddha disappointed. And then the next part is where he gives this teaching about the six principles of cordiality that are to be practiced in public and also in private towards one's companions in the spiritual life. So that's where we will find it most interesting in terms of how we are currently developing and how we can uh, do a little more from what we already know. And then the third one is after giving the, the list of six, he uses the example or the simile of a pinnacled house. And the Buddha says that the highest of the six principles or qualities is the noble view because it leads to the complete destruction of suffering. And as we know, that's for good reason. The Noble Eightfold Path begins with the Noble Right View. And then the last part of the teaching is where the Buddha goes on to explain how that Noble View actually does lead to the complete destruction of suffering for one who practices according to it. And he goes into seven knowledges that are attained, and these knowledges or factors are for realizing the fruit of stream entry, as well as for maintaining or activating the fruit of the attainment. So that's what we'll look at today. 
and just briefly about why this teaching is important. We've covered some of it already, but when you look at this conflict in the Sangha, it's similar to conflicts we find in the world and also much closer to home, whether we live in spiritual communities or whether we're literally at home in a monastery or in a lay household. Even when we live at, alone at home, it's good to even take on board how this can affect us. So we can use worldly examples or more importantly, our own examples to apply this teaching. What we see from this particular discourse is how living in disharmony, all this quarreling, backbiting, verbally assaulting each other, how it actually leads to the decline in wholesome quality. And this in turn means we deteriorate in our spiritual practice. Now the bhikkhus of Kosambi couldn't see that. And what we need to take away from it is to actually see it. And then if we take up the Buddha's advice in this teaching, then we see how living in harmony can be more conducive to increasing or growing wholesome qualities, what is supportive. And Buddha praises this, of course, any growth in wholesome qualities. And so it results in a real development on the noble path. Now, when you read this sutta, you actually start to really look intensely at who you live with, who you associate with. And this is a good thing because it makes you really think about who is really a supporter, who is really wanting to grow the path. And when you look at these principles of cordiality, when we go through them, you start to see there are differences and there are things in common with certain people. And that is a good realization to have as well. And how you act from there is also important. So this better helps us to recognize what is cultivated in the world. So what is not supportive of the noble path. And so when we see that the world is like these bhikkhus of Kosambi, you start to develop a genuine dispassion towards the world and the wrong kinds of company, so papamitata. And the other distinction in this teaching is about in public and in private, what we practice. And this one's always an interesting one because the question always comes up of manifesting in the world. And this teaching is particularly useful at looking at it and for us to investigate it even for ourselves. And then by way of this teaching, we come to realize that we need to apply greater effort towards not just developing, but also maintaining things like loving kindness, things like metta. So we may be very good at metta when we sit on a cushion or in a chair and meditate. But once we come off and we're back in the world, it's really interesting by looking at even this question that the Buddha asked the monks, do you maintain acts of loving kindness physically, verbally, and mentally while you are in this dispute? And, and so that's a question that we can turn to ourselves around that, both in public and in private, um, and how we, we maintain it. And also other spiritual qualities as well. So this is very much about living by the Dhamma, so Dhamma Vihari, manifesting both internally and externally and from wisdom. And then the very strong emphasis in this teaching is around the noble right view. And so we get to deepen our understanding of why the noble right view leads, why it leads to the leads to attainments and how to support the maintenance of those attainments as well. So this community dis disharmony in Kosambi, we'll start with the sutta. It says, thus have I heard on one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Kosambi in Gosita's Park. Now on that occasion, the bhikkhus at Kosambi had taken to quarreling and brawling 
and were deep in dispute, stabbing each other with verbal daggers. They could neither convince each other nor be nor be convinced by others. They could neither persuade each other nor be persuaded by others. Then a certain bhikkhu went to the Blessed One and after paying homage to him, he sat to one side and informed him of what was happening. Then the Blessed One addressed a certain bhikkhu thus, Come bhikkhu, tell these bhikkhus in my name that the teacher calls them. Yes, Venerable Sir, he replied, and he went to those bhikkhus and told them, The teacher calls the Venerable Ones. And then... Yes, friend, they replied, and they went to the Blessed One, and after paying homage to him, they sat down at one side. The Blessed One then asked them, Bhikkhus, is it true that you have taken to quarrelling and brawling and are deep in disputes, stabbing each other with verbal daggers, that you can neither convince each other nor be convinced by others, that you can neither persuade each other nor be persuaded by others? Yes, Venerable Sir. And then the Buddha says, Bhikkhus, what do you think? When you take to quarrelling and brawling and are deep in disputes, stabbing each other with verbal daggers, do you on that occasion maintain acts of loving kindness by body, speech and mind in public and in private towards your companions in the spiritual life? And they answer, no, venerable sir. So the words and phrasing used to describe the behaviour of the monks at Kosambi, in Pali the first part is tena korpana samayena kosambiyam bhikkhu and then the key words are vandana jata Kalahajata, Vivadapana, Anyamanyang, Mukasati, Vitudanta, Viharanti. So Bandanajata, this translates as arising of an argument or quarrel. Kalahajata, arising of a dispute or a fight, a brawl. Vivadapana is translates as fallen or going down deep into dispute or contention, into controversy. Anyamanyang, Mukasati, Vitudanta. That's the, the words that are translated as stabbing each other with verbal daggers. So that's one translation. Another translation is wounding each other with barbed words. And another translation is stabbing another one another with weapons of the mouth. And I guess you could whittle that down to uh, mutual verbal assault or uh, mutual piercing words at each other. And so you get a very strong impression of deep-seated uh, division deep conflict, arguing, quarreling, and intense verbal sparring, like verbal fighting. And then the other part of the, in Pali is tena cheva anyamanyang sanya penti, nacha sanya ting upenti, nacha anyamanyang nija penti, nacha nija ting upenti. So sanya penti, this is all about the convincing. And it also translates as trying to gain the upper hand, trying to prove the other side wrong and nijapenti translates as trying to persuade win over compel so where you get to with this verbal sparring after you take sides and then what you do is you attempt to convince persuade compel the other side and this is in order to win the argument or prove the other side wrong or to gain from the particular outcome so when we look at all these words and, and this account, it's clearly rooted in lots of akusala, lots of unwholesome. But what you can also see is when you're at the center of such things, such disputes and, and arguments, you can't see the defilements that are driving the behavior. So when the, the bhikkhus are facing the Buddha, they're not seeing any of that. They're answering his questions, but they're not appalled by their behavior not like the Buddha is. So the Buddha is rightly appalled by the behavior of the Kosambi Bhikkhus. 
And he does ask them about when they are quarreling, whether they maintain acts of loving kindness by body, speech, and mind in public and private towards their companions in their spiritual life. So the key um, Pali words here are avi and rahul. So avi is in public. So that means out in the open to someone's face. Raho translates as in private or in solitude behind closed doors, sometimes secretly. So it's interesting how the Buddha is asking the monks about whether metta is present and active when they are in the midst of that situation, quarreling. So publicly, we could associate with openly demonstrating metta to, to each other. Privately is when we're away from others, but we still have, you know, um, cultivated those loving kind thoughts and, and actions in our mind towards others. And most definitely when we develop the meditation, that's what would be in private. So we will see from the Buddha's teaching further along is that he encourages cultivating metta both publicly and privately in order to be able to live in harmony with others. Now, the bhikkhus at Kosambi, they answer, of course, in the negative, but that's already apparent in their behavior, like the description of their behavior, what they demonstrate through their quarreling and disputes. They've already taken sides. They're already divided into, into groups. Um, they continuously harm each other with their words. So there's a lot of resentment and aversion and, and hate running through them and towards each other. So we know that metta, loving kindness, that's the medicine for ill will, anger, hate, all of that. But the monks are not easy to instruct despite what is really the prompting of the buddha what's happened to them is that they've been overtaken by the armies of mara so discontent aversion derogation obstinacy and so they are in a way you could say perversely happy to dwell in the disharmony in the dispute So after hearing their answers, the Buddha then reiterates their response and reproves them by saying, so because when you take to quarreling and brawling and are deep in dispute, stabbing each other with verbal daggers, on that occasion, you do not maintain acts of loving kindness by body, speech and mind in public and in private towards your companions in the spiritual life. And then he says, misguided men, what can you possibly know? What can you see that you take to quarreling and brawling and are deep in disputes, stabbing each other, each other with verbal daggers, that you can neither convince each other nor be convinced by others, that you can neither persuade each other nor be persuaded by others? So really there's an impasse between these, these, these two groups in the Sangha. And then Buddha says, misguided men, that will lead to your harm and suffering for a long time. So the first thing the Buddha calls them out as, Morga Purusa, that's in Pali. So that's been translated as misguided men. It also translates as stupid, foolish, or useless people. So it's it's a very derogatory term, but it's meant to wake them up, but clearly it's not doing that. And then the other Pali phrase is digaratang ahitaya dukaya. So this is where the Buddha says this will lead to your harm and suffering for a long time. So hitha is usually for our benefit or blessing or good, our welfare. So ahitha means our harm, misfortune or something bad. And dukkha we know is the suffering and all the associated terms with suffering. So the Buddha is clearly pointing out to these monks that they're declining from the noble path and following the wrong one, that their wholesome states by body, speech and mind are, are deteriorating and their unwholesome states are increasing. 
And this leads to their harm and suffering for a long time because they're the owners of their kamma and they'll have to suffer the consequences. And they're certainly veering off the noble path, which is the way out of suffering. They're going in the other direction. They're very far away from Nibbana at this point. So this is something that we must recognize too. Like when you read the, the words of the Buddha, you need to take it in so you, you get the teaching as it is being taught to, to, the, to the people that are receiving the teaching. So for us, it's important to recognize any kind of dispute, quarreling or propensity, tendency, liking to argue, fight, squabble uh, is not a good thing. And we mustn't have that willingness to want to go into conflicts, to take sides, uh, even endorse a fight and to try and compel others towards a point of view. What we must do is really heed the Buddha's words. The, the point, I think, is that coming into samsara, we are highly conditioned to argue, highly conditioned to quarrel and fight from, from childhood when we go to school. Uh, this is something that is instilled, particularly in debating about knowledge. So the world we live in is imbued with it across all kinds of subjects. So when we've been at school, at work, at home, in our communities, we're constantly pulled in to take sides. You just look at what's in the news these days. It's about race, as usual, gender, age, politics, economics, uh, science, sports, history, beliefs, culture, everything really. So it's being driven by wrong views and highly steeped in the sense of self, my view, my knowledge, my understanding. And it's important to see the danger in this kind of thing. It's rooted in greed, hatred, and a lot of delusion. It pulls us away from being able to develop the noble path because what we do is we, we face all these internal and external battles and we veer off. So it's good to ask when this tendency comes up, even at the outset, is to ask, where is the peace? Where is the lasting happiness and well-being? Where is the safety? And like the monks of Kosambi, if we fall for these things, then we will have taken something outside of Nibbana as the truth, something else that we've taken that will give us happiness. And it won't be long-lasting happiness like Nibbana. So then the Buddha gives this teaching to the monks and he says, so then the blessed one addressed the bhikkhus thus, bhikkhus, there are these six principles of cordiality that create love and respect and conduce to cohesion, to non-dispute, to concord and to unity. So in Pali, the Buddha says, chayime bhikkhawe, dhamma, saraniya, piyakarana, garukarana, sangahaya, avivadaya, samagya, Ekibhavaya and Samavantati. So Dhammasaraniya is what's been translated as these principles of cordiality. So these are the qualities that are warm-hearted. They're the conditions that are conducive to amiability, getting along, living together harmoniously. And the pr principles or qualities are meant to please or endear. So this is the this is what's been translated as love, pia karano, so to please please or endear oneself, and then to respect and honour, garu karano, uh, to foster or promote cohesion, sangahaya, this is also inclusion, like bonding, fellowship, and then avivadeya, which means not getting into dispute, so this is more like harmony, harmonising, 
samagia, which means concord. So there's an agreement with each other, almost like moral agreements as well. There's peace. And then ekibhava translates as solitude. And this one's been translated here as unity, but it's also like being okay with being alone, like having some, taking some, some solitude, even though you're in a group. So when you put all that together, these are the principles or qualities that we need in order to foster and maintain harmony with others, mutual respect, mutual agreement, cohesion, inclusion, that sort of thing. Now, we find some of these terms also applied when the Buddha is with Venerable Anuruddha and Venerable Nandiya and Venerable Kimbila. And this is these are the monks who are successfully li living in harmony with each other. This is an account that is in the Upakilesa Sutta. It's also in Majjhimikai, it's discourse number 128. It's like the other side of the coin to this Kosambia Sutta. Uh, the meeting occurs after the Buddha departs from Gosita Monastery, disgusted and disappointed with the monks of Kosambi. And what we'll do is refer to this a little bit later along. So what are the six principles of cordiality? Here a bhikkhu maintains bodily acts of loving kindness, both in public and in private, towards his companions in the spiritual life. Again, a bhikkhu maintains verbal acts of loving kindness, both in public and in private, towards his companions in the spiritual life. Again, a bhikkhu maintains mental acts of loving kindness, both in public and in private, towards his companions in the spiritual life. Again, a bhikkhu uses in common with his virtuous companions in the spiritual life without making reservations. He shares with them any gain of kind that accords with the Dhamma and has been obtained in a way that accords with the Dhamma, including even the contents of his bowl. Again, a bhikkhu dwells both in public and in private, possessing in common with his companions in the spiritual life those virtues that are unbroken, untorn, unblotched, unmottled, liberating, commended by the wise, not misapprehended, and conducive to concentration. Again, a bhikkhu dwells both in public and in private, possessing in common with his companions in the spiritual life that view that is noble and emancipating, and leads one who practices in accordance with it to the complete dis destruction of suffering. These are the six principles of cordiality that create love and respect and conduce to cohesion, to non-dispute, to concord, and to unity. So we will go through those, but we'll read a little more, and then we'll go through each one. So then the Buddha goes on to say, of these six principles of cordiality, the chief, the most cohesive, the most unifying, is this view that is noble and emancipating and leads the one who practices in accordance with it to the complete destruction of suffering. Just as the chief, the most cohesive and the most unifying part of a pinnacled house is the pinnacle itself, so too of these six principles of cordiality, the chief, the most cohesive, the most unifying is this view that is noble and emancipating and so on. So this does accord with what we have learned from the Buddha already when it comes to the noble path. Noble right view is the leader, the chief. That's how we develop the other path factors of the noble eightfold path and not the wrong one, not the wrong path. And in the same way, the noble right view is the chief of these other five principles of cordiality. It helps to bind them, unify them together. So when we live in harmony with others, it comes from developing and maintaining noble right view. And you can really see that, actually. When you develop noble right view, 
everything else falls away because you know that that's that's not liberating that's not helpful and most of the time when noble right view is there you start to see how much this this life is filled with unwholesome tendencies if we allow it so what we find is when noble right view is active the rest of the qualities they're also active and can be maintained so before we go into each of the principles, I wanted to come back to this Upakilesa Sutta because I think sometimes it's really good to, to have in our mind a good example before we launch into the principles themselves because then you already have something in your mind. So as we said in the Upakilesa Sutta, that's our good example of three monks who are li living together. So Venerable Anuruddha, Venerable Nandiya and Venerable Kimbila. And so when Buddha leaves goes to the monastery and, and looks for somewhere to spend the vasa, he comes across Venerable Anuruddha and the other two monks and, and he asks a very similar question to Venerable Anuruddha about how he how he dwells with the other monks and whether he dwells with you know acts of loving kindness, bodily, verbal and mental and, and whether they live in harmony. And the answer that Venerable Anuruddha gives is really wonderful. He says, Venerable Sir, as to that, I think thus, it is a gain for me, it is a great gain for me that I live, that I'm living with such companions in the spiritual life. I maintain bodily acts of loving kindness towards these venerable ones, both openly and privately. I maintain verbal acts of loving kindness towards them both, openly and privately. I maintain mental acts of loving kindness towards them both, openly and privately. I consider why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? Then I set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do. We're different in body, venerable sir, but one in mind. So apart from maintaining bodily, verbal and mental acts of loving kindness, both publicly and privately towards his companions in the spiritual life, venerable Anuruddha, he expresses his thought that it's a gain for him to be living with such wonderful companions, these spiritual companions. And there's a sense of joy and gratitude to the way he thinks. And that's something for us to pick up on, that uh, that's how we need to view those that we particularly live with. And then his mindset is also very wholesome because he says, um, he considers, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? And then he do does exactly that. There's a lot of flexibility that comes across in his mindset, the non-grasping of even his own preferences and needs. There's a willingness to be flexible and to bend, to go along with the others and not to have very strong views one way or another. This is a very high practice. So this is our very good example. And it's very much in line what we, with what we have learned in, in Metta Bhavana, in the loving kindness, like the instructions. So this particular thing that Venerable Anuruddha is conveying to us or conveying to the Buddha, it's very good for us to reflect on this because we ask ourselves, do we have this kind of flexibility and willingness to put aside what we wish to do and do what our companions in the spiritual life wish us to do? Even in Dhamma activities, we can be reluctant to bend to the needs and wants of others. Usually we come from maybe a position of what I'm doing is more important better um, I serve more people or what I'm doing is more meritorious so when you think about Benwell Anuruddha's uh, con consideration he doesn't think like that he thinks why should I not set aside what I wish to do 
and do what the venerable ones wish to do. And then he sets those aside. So I thought that was very, very interesting. And then also when he says we are different in body, venerable sir, but one in mind, that one in mind is that they have the same right view. So it's just remarkable. Uh, you, you don't see that um, today, you know, in the world. And then uh, when the three monks, so all the venerables, Anuruddha, Nandi and Kimbila, they're asked by the Buddha how they abide, diligent, ardent and resolute in living in concord with mutual appreciation without disputing. And he says, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. They each answer the same. They say, uh, Venerable Sir, as to that, whichever of us returns first from the village with alms food, prepares the seats, sets out the water for drinking and for washing, and puts the refuse bucket, bucket in its place. Whichever of us returns last, eats any food left over, if he wishes, otherwise he throws it away where there is no greenery or drops it into water where there is no life. He puts away the seats and the water for drinking and for washing. He puts away the refuse bucket after washing it and he sweeps out the refectory. Whoever notices that the pots of water for drinking, washing, or the latrine are low or empty, takes care of them. If they are too heavy for him, he calls someone else by a signal of the hand, and they move it by joining hands. And because of this, we do not break out into speech. But every five days, we sit together all night discussing the Dhamma. This is how we abide diligent, ardent, and resolute. So again, let me just say very, very high practice. But what this points to is they help each other out without speaking or discussing what needs to be done. It's very proactive and considerate of each other. So that's the first key point. The second is when help is needed, they gesture for assistance and then they do it together without speaking. And for when you, when you look at this, they speak very little, if at all, day to day. So they cut out all unbeneficial talk. And every five days, that's when they come together to discuss the Dhamma all night. And that is when they speak. So they are only doing speech, which is related to the Four Noble Truths, to liberation, to all that, all that sort of thing. Only what is beneficial. So nothing in the day-to-day -day enters. Now, from that perspective of aspiring to the Noble Path, this is the epitome the highest of what living in harmony looks like. And yes, it, it's uh, quite, uh, it, it makes you gobsmacked, but at the same time, it's good to have that in the mind. What it really points to is much less talking um, and only talking that is conducive to harm harmonious living. And what's obvious is when you contrast the monks at Kosambi and then this good example of Venerable's uh, Anuruddha, Nandia, and Kimbila, it's such a contrast. So talking a lot and being free with speech, that conduces to arguments, division, and much worse. And most of the time, if, if you really investigate it, speech is one or all of the four kinds of wrong speech, lying, harsh speech, divisive speech, and frivolous or empty talk, all that is rooted in unwholesome. So that is far away from Nibbana. And what we see is that we don't make enough effort towards less talk and particularly less unbeneficial talk. So it's also good to remember that right speech and right effort, that's how we develop virtue, this bhavita sila, and it leads to concentration due to mind. It leads particularly to the second jhana. 
So if we don't make effort to develop this, then we can't develop and maintain citta samadhi. So metta, of course, we know is needed when we connect it with Dukkha Patipada Kipa Binya, painful practice with quick realization, second doorway to Nibbana. So all these things kind of come together when you see it in this way. Now, we may be thinking, oh, that's really difficult. There's so much that needs to be said to get things done and to get them done right and, and to coexist harmoniously, to be nice people, to get along. But Venerables Anuruddha Nandiya and, and Venerable Kimbila, they demonstrate otherwise. So I know that seems like a very high example, but I do have an example even from lay life. So it's in the vicinity of these noble disciples, but it's nowhere near perfect like that. So about five years ago, uh, we had a meditation retreat and was in a small town in the south of Sri Lanka. And a group of Kalyanamitta got together and organized and held this retreat for about 100 to 120 people. And the core team who were running the retreat of teachers and helpers were about 10 people. And as we know, even in doing wholesome activities, such as running a retreat, we can breed defilements by way of body, speech, and mind. And most especially for big events, even dumb events, where there are large groups of people, time pressures, food requirements, drink requirements, having to work in a team with people maybe you don't know so well, and also unexpected challenges that can come up, particularly when it's dhamma-related. Now, due to the metta practice of the team, who were conducting the retreat, there was no ordering around. There was no one who took control of the event. There were no squabbles or disputes when challenges arose, which they certainly did. There was no claiming of, I did this and you haven't done that. Instead, there was teamwork that operated with uh, no definitive instructions. Like There was a general understanding of what needed to be done from day to day and the timing of things. But as an example, when meals were to be served, the team simply did what needed to be done. If there was stirring of pots, if there was uh, ladling of things, if there was organizing of the serving table, help was given where it was needed. Things were carried when they needed to be carried, cleaned when they needed to be cleaned, organized and set out uh, for the next day as, as thought to do so. And other people who saw what was happening, they naturally wanted to come and help. And so they simply just joined in and joined in wherever it was needed. And with external parties, when an issue came up, metta was practiced at the bodily and speech level, even with great difficulty to accommodate um, the other party and to resolve the issue to at least some kind of, of benefit to, to each side. Now, that retreat was one of the best ones I've ever experienced in terms of how it was run, how it was conducted, and the feedback from the helpers was also very joyful and uplifting, as you would expect. Now, it wasn't a perfect retreat um, in the sense of not having challenges or, or everything go right. It did have those challenges and things didn't always go right, but it was good in terms of the level of metta practice that was manifesting in the teachers and the helpers with each other and to the retreatants and to the external parties. And so under those conditions, in those challenging settings, it was actually a really good retreat. So as we go into the six principles or, or qualities of cordiality, we can kind of have the very, very good example and then this example in our minds. So there's always deeper dhamma behind 
many of these suttas. And what we'll see is when we have developed in terms of the Mahachattarisika Sutta, the Vatubhava Sutta, uh, Samadhi Bhavana Sutta, the Veda Vitaka Sutta, all the ones we've done, they're very helpful towards understanding more of this Dhamma in this, in this particular Sutta. Let's now look into bodily, verbal and mental acts of loving kindness in public and in private. So the Pali here is metang kaya kamang, vachi kamang, mano kamang, pachupatitang, poti, sabrahma charisu aviceva rahocha. So this, in relation to these three things, the word pachupatitang, that's translated here as maintains, but it can also be that it's present, it's ready, it's at one's disposal, and it can be made active. So when you think about living in harmony, living with others, one needs to have metta at the ready. It needs to be made active as and when required. And so when we say avi, which is in public, so openly, or rahul, which is in private or in solitude behind closed doors, when we live with others in spiritual community or in a household that is inclined towards Dhamma, we need to be able to activate and then maintain metta. And this is when we meditate as well as when we're interacting and doing things with others, living around and with others. And so it's fundamental to overcoming anything that is rooted in the unwholesome. It certainly helps because we won't get swayed by external conditions. Now, what we can normally do is we call out the hate part because we know that the Buddha's teachings are around uh, greed, hatred, and delusion, but they're all connected. So when we look at disputes and quarreling, we normally try and think, oh, that's mainly about hate, but usually that kicks off with greed first and then uh, hate kicks in and delusion is always there. So when we look at unwholesome qualities that can arise then we know these are all at the mental level they're all the mental stains or defilements so from covetousness and unequal greed ill will aversion anger hostility derogation divisiveness envy stinginess hypocrisy deception or fraud stubbornness or mental rigidity competition conceit arrogance vanity or intoxication and of course negligence and then when it comes to verbally, well, any unwholesome speech is what we want to knock out. So the harsh speech, the divisive speech, lying and frivolous talk and unwholesome bodily actions. This is very much killing, harming living beings, taking what is not giving, given, uh, sexual misconduct. When our metta practice has deepened, this extends to misconduct with all the senses. So not just uh, sexual misconduct, when we start to develop and deepen our metta, metta practice. So we know when we cultivate metta, we know that we are cleaning, we're purifying for, for all of these right at the front of our, our meditation. And we know that Vatubhama Sutta, Anumana Sutta, they're like the prerequisites for developing metta. So we purify so that we abandon defilements, we abandon unskilled states and so when we have the 10 skilled states it's from that that we cultivate develop metta towards others so what this means in practice is to really see whether what we practice in private in our meditation flows into what we practice in public whether we are able to activate it whether we're able to make it make it work 
So we're already skilled in meditation to a degree in all of the, the suttas we just mentioned. So we don't need to revisit the steps of those meditations. But it's very good to remember that some of the conditions that drive these, these mental stains or defilements, they really block metta. So how we lie, how we have strong preferences, how we hold grudges, how we keep reinforcing this very strong sense of self, this me and mine. So what we can do is look at some of the key parts of the inside pathway in the Karani Metta Sutta and maybe also look at the first unprofitable direction where we can go wrong and not be able to maintain metta. So some of this we've already highlighted before when we did some metta Q&A, but it's well worth the reminder from this perspective, looking at this other angle of what the Buddha is saying about in public and in private, looking at metta. So the whole Metta Sutta is actually worth reviewing again when you, when it comes to the Buddha's words in this Kusambhya Sutta. But let's focus a little about mudu, gentleness, because this really helps when it's linked to apagabo, this courteousness or politeness, particularly at the bodily level, verbal level, and then mental level. So when we look at this, we know that at a bodily level in public, what this really means is we refrain from the obvious rudeness, impoliteness, like refraining from pushing and shoving, not behaving with anger or aversion, throwing things or breaking things with abruptness, um, heedlessly slamming doors and windows, coming out without a care, uh, things that might affect, you know, our actions that might affect people we live with. And, you know, even on the road, not driving in an aggressive way, refraining from harsh or rude gestures, finger pointing, not making faces to show hostility or displeasure. All of these things are what we try to refrain from. But when we want to demonstrate metta where appropriate, these are the things such as what we heard from Venbul Anuruddha and the other two monks, their example. It's like taking actions without instruction. But when we notice things need to be done, and this is mainly about when we live with people, you take out the garbage when you see it needs to be taken out. You clear and clean up if it's needed. You refill water, you sort cupboards, you, you run the laundry, you make sure things are not left out that someone would trip over. You help out when there's washing to be done. All the different things that make living together easeful, that's a, a way of being gentle and courteous. It's also lending a hand to fix something, carry something, offering lifts, giving up time for a person who needs it, helping an older person, sharing one's physical space. And if you're making a drink, making a drink for somebody else, you know, things like that, or offering a specific skill or support. And of course, sharing what we have comes under that as well, whatever we have or what we've been given and being flexible and generous with the wishes of others not just our own wishes, which is what we learned from the um, Upakilesa Sutta. So things of this nature come from a place of due consideration. You know, we are thoughtful towards others, thoughtful of the household or community that we live with, its overall well-being, rather than just of ourselves, what is me and mine, more than that. And then at a verbal level in public, this part of it we already know from our development of metta is we refrain from unwholesome speech so that's the lying harsh loud rude divisive frivolous talk we're more considerate about the noise that we make like when we play videos music and so forth 
uh, we refrain from constantly interrupting when another is speaking. We make more effort to listen. We don't construct in our own mind what we're about to say next. We actually listen. Uh, we refrain from bossing people around with our words. We refrain from name calling and wanting to indulge and talk about people. So how we can demonstrate this in terms of metta, as opposed to just refraining from unwholesome, is around taking more care in how we address people, uh, grounding ourselves before we speak, taking more care in offloading what we construct in our mind, uh, erring more on the, the side of noble silence, thinking, do I need to say that? Where is it coming from? Is it beneficial talk? Is, is what I'm saying about to pollute another person's mind? And for the high practice, uh, for this noble path, it, the question that one can ask oneself is, is what I'm about to say prioritizing something over Nibbana or what leads to Nibbana? And that, that's part of the higher practice. When we give up frivolous talk or empty speech, Sampapalapa, then we're really practicing non-delusion. You know, we're, we're not trying to increase ignorance and, and delusion. So that's the verbal level. Then at a mental level, in public, we know this is we could be in public and in our minds we can be telling people off in our minds. You know, the mental chatter that is harming people, we might be name-calling in our heads and filled with judgment towards others by what we make contact with. We see somebody and we see what they're doing and, and we, we think, oh, and we have not nice thoughts about them, non-meta thoughts. So we might not say it out loud, but we think it. And it can also be mentally comparing ourselves to others and, and making value judgments, like raising ourselves and lower, lowering others. So when we want to demonstrate metta, this is often what is not in the mind is not metta. What is in the mind is not metta. And, and we have the wrong view of, of self when, when that is kicking in. And so when that's active, all the mental stains actually come to take hold. And when this is the case, it's it's very difficult because this is usually when we make contact with others. It triggers aversion, it triggers grudges, it triggers envy, it, it triggers stinginess. And it could be physical contact, but it could also be that someone just comes to your mind and then this is what happens. And you could be living with the person, of course. But the best way to overcome this in terms of the cultivation of metta, like when you have the mental harshness and the non-gentleness, is really falling back on physical or verbal actions of metta. So, for example, if we're holding a grudge against someone we live with, we need to go against that because often what we think is not true. There are lies. You know, not everything we think about a person is true. We don't know many, many things. And so it's good to go against it by sharing something with them or helping them with something. So that's how you really go against that mental, mental non-metta. And it can be something very mundane or small, but it's still something. Or it could be just one simple kind word like, hello, wish you well today, um, which is more than one word, but, you know, something like that. Because often the people we live with can sense if there are grudges or we're grudging. And so if we go against it, it's a way of reducing the potency of a, a mental grudge. And often if we admit it, we can believe that we forgive people but quite often we we haven't, the grudge remains. And so unless we do something more wholesome and conscious around it, it lingers and 
because of really the wrong view is active. So our preferences, our likes, dislikes, desires, they always distort our view. We take something as suba, so pleasing, and we think we can make it last, there's nicha. And as a result, we expect sukha. And, and this is the pleasure or the happiness. And at some point, we take it as me and mine. So wrong view is active. And so our thoughts, speech, and bodily actions will also go the wrong way. So it's important to know that. And we should be able to see that given what we're actually learning and practicing from the Buddha. Now, the other one that we can look at is around being not arrogant, contented, and easy to support, and with few duties, and living a modest life. This, this phrasing here, this is also very important in terms of metta qualities, particularly when you live with others. You think about arguments and disputes, they arise when there is arrogance, discontent, when people are difficult to support or satisfy, um, when people are too stressed with duties and maybe even a desire for more exuberant or lavish life, more exciting life. And this certainly applies in household life, but it can also apply in spiritual and monastic communities. So if we really look into this part of it and be quite honest about what that's like, there is so much dukkha there. Think of it from the perspective of having individual needs, then relationship needs, then parental duties and responsibilities, then outward to groups, like the group needs and everything so the more demanding each and every person is for their karma preferences, so wanting their sensual pleasures to be met, the more dukkha is experienced or will be experienced. So discontent, unhappiness, pain and despair, they all grow as a result of that rather than subside. And the dhamma behind all that is really that we don't get what we want. You know, this is part of the first noble truth of suffering. It doesn't last. What we crave and want and yearn for these things they don't last and they're painful as a result of that and subject to change or decay so this is the recipe of disaster that we've spoken about over and over again now if we can see that then we understand that the higher training in virtue concentration of mind and wisdom is what really enables us to uh, value these qualities of metta when we have more humility then we know that we can't control these conditions. No matter how much money or time we, we, we throw at it, we are still subject to old age, sickness, and death. And if we truly understand the danger in sensual pleasures and our attachment and indebtedness towards them, then what happens is we become more content with what is available, what's been given to us. And in this way, it starts to reduce the wanting, yearning, and longing. And when we are more easy to support, more easily satisfied, we are less of a burden to ourselves and also to those who may be supporting us or living with us. And having fewer duties connects with putting more time and effort towards the Dhammapa. When we turn away genuinely from the worldly tendencies and really start taking delight in the Buddha's teachings, we really see this is the way out of suffering. And even in this present life, as we cultivate this path, there is there is more happiness, more contentment and happiness. So living this modest life, you know, really supports that. It's a real genuine method quality because modest life equates to renunciation, renunciating the world, renunciating worldly pleasures. This is what supports the noble path. And so when we understand this, 
then what you really see is you see why being controlled in the sense faculties, why sense restraint is so important. Now, this has been said before, but it's worth repeating. Those who make effort with sense restraint, so controlling the sense faculties, they have the capacity to develop and maintain more metta. And that's because of the sangvara sila, the virtue of restraint. When you have sangvara, like indriya sangvara, that means you're no longer steading on form all the time. You're not interested in form. You're not wanting to get enticed by things of sensual nature. When you lack sense restraint, you get pulled out with contact through the senses, ear, eyes, nose, tongue, body, and mind. That's where the danger is. So like the simile of the tortoise, which we've mentioned before, if the tortoise leaves its head and limbs unprotected, it will be attacked and attacked by the jackal. And same with us, if we don't control our sense faculties, then we come under attack throughout ear, eyes, nose, tongue, body, and mind. And when there's no sense restraint, we lose our concentration due to desire. So this is the chanda samadhi. And so we become overwhelmed with covetousness. And as a result of covetousness, we become sad. So if we can see this, this like connecting these dhammas, then we realize that the world is imbued with non-metta, like hugely non-metta. So all the defilements, the wrong action, seeking sukha and things that are death-bound, taking all those things as me and mine. So if we are always with the world, then we are always bombarded and we will get into fights and quarrels and disputes. And so that's why we need to put healthy boundaries in place. When you cultivate metta a lot, what you start to find from metta is that metta develops anatta. It develops not me and mine, not self. And non-metta in the world, you see the opposite. You see that it's imbued with me and mine, individuality, individual wants and needs, the self, ego, all of that. So this is where you get to when, when you keep developing metta, you start to see that aspect of it. And when you keep cultivating and you see it like that, you can go to panyavimukti, so liberation due to wisdom very, very quickly because what you're seeing with metta is the nabhinantati, nabhivadati, nabhivadati, so not taking delight, not uh, expressing and not remaining holding to the world and to the worldly aspects and things. You're actually wanting Nibbana. So that's why healthy boundaries are important. It makes it easier when you have this deep uh, metta practice, which I know all of you have been cultivating strongly, is metta. You see that how that really helps because that helps towards the atangama of, of, of dukkha, really like not wanting to be with Dukkha anymore, going for the supreme happiness of Nibbana, really. So previously, when we set healthy boundaries, it was so easy to pick and choose whether we attend something or decline something, more of these physical invitations. But now most things are moving online. So the internet, social media, messaging groups, apps, almost everything is, is eventually going to move online. Through these particular portals, we are presented with more demands and more challenges, more things that compel us and persuade us through a variety of means to take sides, to enter into an online arena. To and then what happens is what we take what we've done online and, and bring it into our physical world and then verbally connect it with other people as well. 
So it becomes a real minefield. So it's very important to pay attention to where we pasture. None of that, that stuff is liberating. None, none of it leads to liberation from samsara. So even online Dhamma forums and groups can offer similar challenges. We go in with a very wholesome intent where we think we talk Dhamma, but we can be easily led into lamentation, like lamenting about the state of things and, and getting into disputes online about you know specifics of Dhamma. And so from that point of view, it can be easy to be cultivating unwholesome states, unwholesome speech, what we type, what we write. And so when we bring Buddha's phrasing with respect to the monks at Kosambi, which was they've taken to quarreling and brawling, deep in disputes, stabbing each other with verbal daggers, trying to convince each other and not be convinced by others, and then neither persuade each other nor be persuaded by each other. In modern times, isn't this the same thing that's happening in the world, in the news, in the politics, in social media, online forums? Wherever we go now, it's like that. So where we pasture, where we put our time, our attention, our presence, we need to take proper care, do proper due diligence and be very careful with our action. The questions to ask are really, where is the metta practice when we enter into such things? What is, is the right view active? Uh, are we refraining from mental stains when we make contact online? Do we verbally spar with our words and emojis? Uh, do we do... Do we take what we do online and replicate it in daily life, at work, at home? You know, these things have a way of spilling over, particularly unwholesome things. So it's important to investigate. So when we hear plans for integrating more technology, uh, this is, you know, it can be good in one sense, but at the same time, there are more challenges ahead. So this is not to take away any of the good qualities of technology. We get certain ease, efficiency, being able to connect from different parts of the world like we're doing now and you know other parts like that but there are also other parts that become non-optional and those are the ones that will be impinging on our metta practice so at this stage it's possible to put healthy boundaries in place and it's important to do so so we can probably leave the karani metta sutta there in your own time what i would suggest is going through the sutta again from the perspective of developing and maintaining bodily, verbal, and mental actions of loving kindness in public and in private towards others, and particularly those we live with, like really contemplating it from that angle, uh, reflect in private, you know, we're, we're meditating on metta regularly and we're purifying and we're including Vatupama or Anamana Sutta in that. And then in public, you know, out in the open, are we considerate in the same way? Do we embody what we practice in private? Are we conscious of maintaining those bodily, verbal, and mental acts of, of loving kindness in public. So the other part is to look at it from the perspective of the unprofitable and profitable direction. So you're familiar with this. This is the Dukkha Paripada Danda Binya, as well as the Kaplankara uh, Hara. So if there is no metta, so we start on the left-hand side, looking at the first unprofitable direction. If there's no metta, consciousness we know, it comes to steady on form, always comes back to steady on form and always wants to misapprehend and take something as suba. So when we take something as suba, so we have contact with the physical nutriment, we take it as suba, then there's this 
escalation of sensual desire that gets triggered by craving because as we know this perversion of taking it as pleasing then we have abhinandati abhiwadati ajrasayatitati so we take delight express and remain holding so sensual desire clinging arises and then it escalates all the way until we keep steadying on form and this is how we go the wrong way due to desire so this is the chanda agati we're deceived by the things that don't last. They're of the nature to decay and change. And these are the things we argue about with others. So these central things, they don't bring us any long-lasting happiness. They can be fleeting. So there is some, some idea of happiness, but it's fleeting. And so we always end up in dukkha, which mean, means that we always end up in hate. So we keep doing this is when we don't see the danger in sensual pleasures and we forget because of the right view and the right mindfulness and the right effort. They're not active and working together. So we fall for the subhasanya. We forget the asubhasanya. So the perception of pleasing becomes at the forefront and the perception of displeasing, which is the repulsive, displeasing, unattractive, that, that gets uh, hidden away. Now, when we understand the first profitable direction, then what we perceive as subha, we are, we've been meditating and correctly seeing the decaying nature, correctly seeing, with, you know, whether it's through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body or mind, whatever is trying to compel us, we are not deceived by that. So the key parts, without going through this whole meditation, because we've, we've done this before, really it's important to see the arising and passing away of form. It's really to see that, Right here, when we think about this first wonderful and marvelous idea, this is really about understanding this is around this dung pile, this cesspool. We misapprehend that it is great when it is not. You know, when we're in the world, we, we're enjoying sensual things and we think they're great, but we, we forget about the sliding nature of these things. And so when we really connect with the first noble truth of suffering, we see that sliding death-bound nature, the arising and passing away, then we realize that all the things we're craving is a lie. It doesn't last. It's subject to change and decay. It's deceptive. What is not deceptive, which, which does not result in dukkha, is nibbana. So that's where we get this determination, this first determination, which is the satchaditana, determination for truth not to take anything outside of Nibbana as the highest happiness, the highest gain. Everything else deceives us. It decays, it dies, it ends in Dukkha. So we get the Chanda Samadhi, concentration due to desire, when we know that sense restraint is needed to protect it. Um, we are able to maintain the Chanda Samadhi, not get pulled back into the world, not to value anything outside of Nibbana. So we develop very strong metta from there. You know, particularly these last three parts, of course, we go back to the Karani Metta Sutta and from the controlling the sense faculties, we're able to develop the immeasurable metta. But metta is essentially nabi nandati, nabi watati, titati, towards anything that is not Nibbana. Yeah, because we realize all these things that, particularly in the world, are death-bound, not leading to long-lasting happiness and safety. So in private, our meditation can be really, really strong. And in public, what we need to remember is to be vigilant about what we make contact with, whether we have a healthy sense of restraint, 
and if if that sense restraint is broken to make sure we're we're perceiving it clearly with the truth that certain things are repulsive in nature they're not um, what we think they are like beauty attractive pleasing and so where you come to is you really start to see the dukkha of being a pleasure seeker it's so much dukkha because all you end up is is really dukkha all the time so pleasure seeker equals uh dukkha person really so as we've seen in the meditation, it's really important not to fall for it, not to be deceived by what is conditioned in the world, not to take anything or value anything outside of Nibbana for happiness. So even a little bit of this insight, if it is active, then there's more ease towards living in harmony. Like if you just contemplate that for a little bit, not taking anything outside of Nibbana because everything else just results, eventually results in Dukkha, then you feel like there's less, propelling you to to fight with others to get concerned about petty things uh, you'd rather cultivate and develop more virtue than fall into dispute there's more shame around taking things as me and mine and having this wrong view so when we see the dukkha in these kinds of defilements we recognize that you know th this is still fighting at, at the ground level of spiritual practice when we start to take more delight in higher concentration and wisdom, it gets more interesting because we really start to see more of the real sickness in the mind. So what is cultivating in public, we really lean on what we cultivate in private. The strongest insight or wisdom from our meditation is what we use and need to remember to activate when we're in public, whether we're about to get into a dispute, whether we are in a dispute, that kind of thing. And of course, it's not easy. But when we start to be more contemplative, when we start to quieten the mind, when we start to have more patience, more gentleness, as we navigate through, I guess, the rest of our lives, then this starts to work its way in. And if we're doing it right, there's genuine consideration for those we live with, not from a sense of attachment or expectation or wanting to be a good person, but from genuine wisdom of metta, like having that real understanding of the first noble truth of suffering, having that genuine determination for truth, that satchaditana, that, that is nibbana, and seeing the value of sense restraint. So many things from these meditations help us to develop the noble path. And you can really see where when Buddha talks about metta, uh, bodily actions, verbal actions, mental actions, in public and in private, having them active, maintaining them, how, why it's so important. So the fourth principle is around generosity. So the Buddha says, again, Abhikkhu uses things in common with his virtuous companions in the spiritual life without making reservations. He shares with them any gain in, uh, of a kind that accords with the Dhamma and has been obtained in a way that accords with the Dhamma, including even the contents of his bowl. So this is really about being willing to share whatever you've gained or, or, or anything that has been given. And this is without having any preferences, any reservations, any holding back. In the Sanyutta Nikaya chapter on stream entry, we know that one of the factors that the Buddha talks about to be possessed by a stream entry, other than Aryakantasila, sometimes it's replaced with generosity. And the wording for that is dwelling with the mind devoid of the stain of stinginess, 
freely generous, open-handed, delighting in relinquishment, one devoted to charity, delighting in giving and sharing. When you hear those words and you connect them even with the words in this sutta, it's really about living without greed, seeing the opportunity to share with others as a gain, being able to offer and share with those we live with because we're happy that we have such spiritual companions um, and it's joyful and rewarding to share. And it's also very helpful in this quality of renunciation. So this clearly goes any goes against any of the different kinds of stinginess or selfishness, the macharya that can be can be there as an unwholesome quality. Now, as we already know, we develop this in metta, and part of being easy to instruct is being able to abandon stinginess. And particularly for immeasurable metta, we need to overcome stinginess. The fact that the Buddha has emphasized this quality on its own can be viewed as important in the context of being able to live in harmony with others. If you ask yourself the question, who would like to live with us if we were stingy or selfish and, and not willing to share, not being generous, like hoarding for ourselves? Um, we know ourselves when we live with other people or we're around people who are not generous, we know how difficult it can be, how disinclined we are to be around those sorts of people who cultivate that kind of unwholesome quality. So whether it's in a worldly sense or on the spiritual path, stinginess is really obstructive. It's actually quite repulsive. And of course, it always leads to problems, squabbles, and disputes. Now, there's a sutta, a number of suttas in the Anguttanikaya chapter five that talk about if we don't give up the five kinds of stinginess, so dwellings, families, material gain, reputation, and dhamma stinginess, then we struggle to get to the higher concentrations and attainments and we can't realize perfection. So it's really good to also investigate that. And the other thing to investigate is the pathway, the inside pathway that leads to stinginess. So we know that stinginess is conditioned by disparaging, so palasa. It's also around having strong preferences. And we know that palasa is conditioned by hostility, so upanaha. So that's where we grudge and label and and have this hostile, like intense anger towards people. And so hostility is conditioned by anger, the korda. So when we see those links, we also get to the root of why we can't share and be generous with people. So it's good to, to see that it boils down to being angry about something in the past, that we're still holding grudges. Maybe we're labeling someone in a derogatory way. We disparage them, shut them out. And so we develop this meanness and, and blocking quality. So the quality that is conducive to cordiality, being able to include, be united, having fellowship, that's not there when we exclude, when we have stinginess. And so you can see why Buddha has this, has this here. So if we're able to share and give, then we're able to develop this noble path, which is, we, we really see that because we know that the wholesome training, giving, means giving up for ourselves, giving to others, means giving up tanha, giving up craving, which means renunciation, which means eventually relinquishment of all. So this strongly inclines us towards nibbana. So this process, you chip away at that. And you also chip away at the sense of me and mine that is actually underneath all that meanness or stinginess. So then we come to the fifth principle, which is around virtue. And the Buddha says, again, a bhikkhu dwells both in private and in public, 
or in public and in private, possessing in common with his companions in the spiritual life, these virtues that are unbroken, untorn, unblotched, unmodeled, liberating, commended by the wise, not misapprehended, and conducive to concentration. So in Pali, that description of these virtues, the sila, is the same as what is written in the around Aryakanta Sila, like when you read that in say the chapter of, on stream entry. So virtues dear to the noble ones. Um, Buddha is saying that when we have same virtues in common with those that we live with, our spiritual companions, both publicly and private, is conducive to harmony, respect, cohesion, unity, fellowship. Now, why does the Buddha say this? It's because there's no reason or cause for division or disparaging each other if our virtues are the same or equal. When they're not the same, so they're not in line with these virtues commended by the wise, that means they're broken, torn, blotched, mottled, they're not liberating, they obstruct concentration, then comparisons can be made with each other. We compare, find fault, fall short, whatever, all those sorts of things, then it leads to arguments and disputes. And if it doesn't lead to verbal arguments and disputes or even bodily fights, physical fights, then it's mental fights. And that can be very, very difficult to live with. So, for example, if one person in the household has higher virtue while the other person isn't even training in higher virtue, then the person with higher virtue may think, that person doesn't have higher virtue. They're falling short, but I've got this higher virtue. And so at that time, what's happening is disparaging and even Atukansaka Paravambi, raising yourself and lowering another. And so it leads to this sentiment of self-righteousness and will eventually lead to arguments because the person who thought that they have higher virtue declines at the moment that the unwholesome states like Palasa and Atukansaka Paravambi, when they kick in. And if they enter into verbal sparring with the other person who isn't making an issue out of it, um, then they fall even further. So this particular principle of quality is a cause for lots of issues in, in our homes, in, in our spiritual communities, particularly because of the differences in virtue. And so we hear a lot of disputes over all kinds of things relating to virtue, you know, whether it's people keeping the five precepts or eight precepts, ten wholesome states, so Dasakusala, uh, the Vinaya, whether uh, monastic communities are actually keeping their sila, how much sense restraint, whether someone is restraining, not restraining, whether to eat at night, whether someone does eat at night, whether to eat meat or fish, uh, how much TV is watched or not watching TV, accessing the internet, whether monks and nuns should have the ability to access the internet, having social media, and then on and on it goes. So it's very easy to grasp the outer bark. So do you remember the Mahasaropama Sutta? We grasp the outer bark, so virtue, thinking it is the heartwood, you know, Nibbana. And really you know, you get into disputes around virtue, it all really leads to the decline in spiritual practice because good virtue is not Nibbana and getting into disputes is, is, is not right. So the important takeaway is to recognize that when we live together as lay practitioners in households or lay and monastic um, in communities or simply monastics in spiritual communities, it's important that we at least attempt to train in similar virtue 
like saying virtue because it's beneficial and to actually notice that when we have uh, we don't have the same virtue that's where issues can arise and to be very careful around that so it's important to maintain it privately and in public so you don't want to be a hypocrite or pretentious or deceive people what you do in private is different from what you do in public you train to make sure it is aligned do the best you can you don't say that you're keeping higher virtue than you really are and when we try and hide things it, it gets revealed anyway uh, particularly with the people we live with and and it's a cause for accusation a cause for judgments resentments and all those sorts of things and it leads to disputes so the level of virtue when it's different say someone uh, indulges in a lot of frivolous talk and, and tolerates unwholesome states and doesn't abandon them just observes them while other people are training in higher virtue it's important not to attack the person who is at a different level, like at a lesser level, cultivating lesser virtue and, and still indulging in mental defilements. It's important for the person who has higher virtue just to have more sense restraint, to not be so interested in another person's practice, not to even go and look and find out, not to, not to do that. And it's a really difficult one because when you live with someone and you do have good friendship, we know it's 100% of the spiritual life. But if someone is not easy to instruct, is not open to feedback, um, doesn't seek assistance with their spiritual practice, then there isn't really much to be done. It's better to leave that person be. And over time, hope that the way that you are as a role model rubs off, that they will come to see that well-being and happiness comes from developing higher virtue. Um, that's probably the best way to go. And then the final one is the view that is noble. So this one, the Buddha says, again, a bhikkhu dwells both in public and in private, possessing in common with his companions in the spiritual life, that view that is noble and emancipating and leads one who practices in accordance with it to the complete destruction of suffering. So in Pali, that last um, bit is yayang ditti arya niyanika. So this is the view that is noble and leading out of samsara so when we live with the same noble right view the buddha says it's possible to live in harmony why does the buddha say this it's always easier to live with someone who sees the four noble truths who sees the arising and passing away who is not taking things as me and mine or is training to not take things as me and mine it's possible to live in harmony with someone who is wise like that when right view is active what is there to really fight about you're not valuing anything above Nibbana. Understanding that all of these things are more constructed, conditioned. And if we fall over these issues, then we are bound to samsara. So this is something where the Buddha is always saying that this noble view is like the pinnacle of the pinnacled house, the chief, the most cohesive, the most unifying. So it binds all those other principles we went through about virtue, about generosity, about acts of loving kindness it binds all of it together unifies it because all those things are leading from the right view it makes sense from a wisdom perspective why you behave in, in that way in public and private towards spiritual companions and people we live with so noble view when cultivated it, it really becomes wisdom and that's how we live in harmony and mutual respect cohesion inclusion 
concord and unity with each other. So that's the first main part. The, the next part we'll just quickly go through. It's really around these seven knowledges that are noble and supramundane. The Buddha poses this question and then answers it. And what we learn from this remaining part of the discourse is really around the seven knowledges that arise from practicing the noble right view. And a noble disciple, when you have these seven knowledges or factors, then you're ready to realize the fruit of stream entry or you have realized the fruit of stream entry and are able to activate that fruit of attainment. So the Buddha says, and how does this view that is noble and emancipating lead the one who practices in accordance with it to the complete destruction of suffering? Here a bhikkhu gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut considers thus, is there any obsession unabandoned in myself that might so obsess my mind that I cannot know or see things as they actually are? If a bhikkhu is obsessed by sensual lust, then his mind is obsessed. If he's obsessed by ill will, then his mind is obsessed. If he's obsessed by sloth and torpor, then his mind is obsessed. If he is obsessed by restlessness and worry, then his mind is obsessed. If he's obsessed by doubt, then his mind is obsessed. If the bhikkhu is absorbed in speculation about this world, then his mind is obsessed. If a bhikkhu is absorbed in speculation about the other world, then his mind is obsessed. If a bhikkhu takes to quarreling, brawling, and is deep in dispute, stabbing, others with verbal daggers, then his mind is obsessed. He understands thus, there is no obsession unabandoned in myself that might so obsess my mind that I cannot know and see things as they actually are. My mind is well disposed for awakening to the truths. This is the first knowledge attained by him that is noble, supramundane, not shared by ordinary people. So here, what we do is we check whether we have any of the five hindrances. So sensual lust, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry and doubt. And we also look at whether we have this tendency to quarrel, verbally spar and cultivate the wrong speech. If we find that the mind is obsessed by the five hindrances and cultivating this type of fighting tendency or wrong speech, then we know that it obstructs the mind from knowing and seeing as they actually are. So this knowing and seeing as they actually are is yata bhuta, napajanayang, napasayanti. So these are the things that would block the truth. So we're not seeing the truth as they actually are. So there are advanced meditations to, to see this clearly, but we'll leave that for another session. But what's important is this, this knowledge here. We know from the Avijja Sutta that the five hindrances are the nutriment for ignorance. So if we block the five hindrances, then we won't grow in ignorance and we grow in wisdom. If we allow the five hindrances to be there, then we grow in ignorance and block wisdom. If we have ignorance, it's a condition for volitional formation, sankharas. So that's how we activate dependent origination. So what the Buddha is saying here is if we have noble right view, then we know that we need to abandon or subdue the five hindrances and any unwholesome verbal actions so we don't grow in ignorance. This is the noble knowledge that is not available to ordinary people. This is the supramundane knowledge that Buddha is speaking about. And if we check and find that there are no unabandoned obsessions of the mind, no hindrances, no unwholesome verbal actions, then we have this first knowledge. 
So one of the fundamental things from the start of this discourse is recognizing that when we value anything outside of Nibbana, we have the wrong view. You know, beauty, permanency, pleasure, self, self that is me and mine. When we correctly value Nibbana, then we know that that will give us supreme happiness and safety. We give up all these wrong views, particularly taking as me and mine. And so this compels us towards removing five hindrances and uh, unwholesome speech and cultivating more wisdom. So that's the first knowledge. The second knowledge that the Buddha talks about, again, a noble disciple considers thus, when I pursue, develop, and cultivate this view, do I obtain internal serenity? Do I personally obtain stillness? He understands thus, when I pursue, develop, and cultivate this view, I obtain internal serenity. I personally obtain stillness. This is the second knowledge attained by him that is noble, super mundane, not shared by ordinary people. So the key phrases in this in this section in Pali are labami, pachatang, samatang. So this translates as the internal serenity or calm. So this is synonymous with concentration. And the other phrase is labang, pachatang, nibutting. So this translates as obtaining internal or personal stillness, uh, the peace, quenching, extinguishment. So this is synonymous with Nibbana. So the understanding or knowledge that we get here is that we need to cultivate and develop and, and pursue, like seriously pursue noble right view in order to get the higher concentration, the, the serenity. And when we do this, we do this by developing the noble eightfold path starting with the noble right view. And then we follow the Buddha's instructions and we see through sensual pleasures, unwholesome states, and also form and formless. And then for the internal stillness or extinguishment, this nibbutting, once we develop higher concentrations, what we know is that having let go of sensual pleasures, unwholesome states, we are now clinging to those higher concentrations. So this part, once you advance in the meditation is you start to understand you need to let go of the higher concentration having now developed it because you see that even in the higher concentrations you still slide we cannot sustain them and so we we let go of them in order to realize nibbana so that's the second knowledge that ordinary people won't have and this is what the buddha calls the second supramundane knowledge and then the other part to that is, again, a noble disciple considers thus, is there any other recluse or Brahmin outside the Buddha's dispensation, possessed of a view such as I possess? He understands thus, there is no other recluse or Brahmin outside the Buddha's dispensation, possessed of a view such as I possess. This is the third knowledge attained by him that is noble, supramundane, not shared by ordinary people. So when we have this noble right view, we don't see any other teacher having the same right view as taught by the Buddha that will liberate us. And as a result of that, how that comes to be is that we don't value any other teachings outside of the Buddha's teachings. We don't give time or seek out other teachings because we know we've got the treasure. And all our time is spent trying to learn, practice and penetrate the Buddha's teaching. So this is the third knowledge, the noble knowledge that ordinary people won't have when we have noble right view we have this supramundane knowledge third knowledge 
the fourth knowledge or the next two knowledges are really around the character of a person who possesses the right view. So the Buddha goes on to say, again, a noble disciple considers thus, do I possess the character of a person who possesses right view? What is the character of a person who possesses right view? This is the character of a person who possesses right view. Although he may commit some kind of offence for which a means of rehabilitation has been laid down, still he at once confesses, reveals, and discloses it to the teacher or to wise companions in the spiritual life, and having done that, he enters upon restraint for the future. Just as a young, tender infant, lying prone, at once draws back when he puts his hand or his foot on a live coal, so too that is the character of a person who possesses right view. He understands thus, I possess the character of a person who possesses right view. This is the fourth knowledge attained by him that is noble, supramundane, not shared by ordinary people. So what the Buddha is saying here is that if we possess the noble right view, then we would admit any trans any mistake, any loss in virtue, we would confess it, make it known, disclose it to a teacher, or tell it to a wise Kalyanamitta. We won't try to cover it up or hide it um, if we have the noble right view. And we would also make a strong determination for restraint and not to allow it to happen again. This is because we understand karma and rebirth. When you have the noble right view, you understand you know, the laws of karma. And you also understand that unwholesome actions are obstructive, that they are obstructive to the noble path. And if we ignore them, they grow. So like the young infant who draws back from the hot coal, we see the danger and downfall in even the slightest fault. We prefer to confess it and absolve ourselves of some of the karma at that point. And so what Buddha is saying is when we have this, then we have the we possess the character of a person who possesses right view. And so this is the fourth knowledge that ordinary people don't have. Now, the fifth knowledge, the Buddha says, again, a noble disciple considers thus, do I possess the character of a person who possesses right view? What is the character of a person who possesses right view? And then he says, this is the character of a person who possesses right view. Although he may be active in various matters for his companions in the spiritual life, yet he has a keen regard for training in the higher virtue, training in the higher mind, training in the higher wisdom. Just as a cow with a new calf, while she grazes, watches her calf, so too that is the character of a person who possesses right view. And of course, this is the fifth knowledge that others don't have, that is noble and supramundane, and then you know you possess the character of a person with noble, noble right view. So this is referring to Adisila Sika, which is uh, training in higher virtue, Adichitta Sika, training in higher concentration of mind, uh, Adipanya Sika, which is training in the higher wisdom. So we can simply also call it Sila Samadipanya, but it's the higher training of those things. Now, when we have the right view, we incline towards this higher training. It is connected to the Noble Eightfold Path. And we know that it leads to Nibbana, inclines to Nibbana. So usually with this, one recognizes you need to apply a lot of effort to undertake the higher training because you're training in higher virtue, higher concentrations, and of course, higher wisdom. You're making extra effort to penetrate the Buddha's teachings. And so one is more vigilant rather than negligent when it comes to the training. 
Now, our sutta meditations help us to see all this, to see the Four Noble Truths, to understand the arising and passing away and dependent origination and all these kinds of things. So when we develop our meditations, we are training in this. We are training in non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion to overcome greed, hatred, and delusion. And most specifically, within these sutta meditations, we know there is always the component of sila, the co component of concentration, and the component of wisdom. So just like the cow with a new calf, while she grazes, watches her calf, even if we have other duties and responsibilities, we prioritize and make time to train, make time for this higher training and develop the Noble Eightfold Path. When we have this, then we know we are a, a person who possesses the character of someone with right view. And so this is, again, noble and supramundane knowledge. Now, the next two knowledges, or the last two knowledges, relate to the strength of a person who possesses right view. So the other one was the character of a person with right view. This is the strength of a person with right view. The Buddha says, again, a noble disciple considers thus, do I possess the strength of a person who possesses right view? What is the strength of a person who possesses right view? And then he goes on, this is the strength of a person who possesses right view. When the Dhamma and discipline proclaimed by the Tathagata is being taught, he heeds it, gives it attention, engages it with all his mind. Hears the Dhamma as with eager ears. So we know this is all very wholesome. This has been quoted in other parts of the Sutta So when you have this, you understand that you possess the strength of a person who possesses right view. This is the sixth knowledge attained by him that is noble, supramundane, not shared with ordinary people. So we can check this because if we have right view, what this means is we like to go and listen to the Dhamma, to Dhamma Vinaya, proclaimed by the Buddha. And we heed the Buddha's words in the way that the Buddha describes. We give our full attention. We're fully engaged. We're listening with eager ears, wanting to correct any wrong views, wanting to learn more, wanting to be able to understand the meaning. And so at the time, the hindrances are subdued. So what we know is if we can like cultivate those six principles of cordiality that are in this Kosambiya Sutta, then that is also conducive to wanting to listen to the Buddha's Dhamma and discipline. So we would be not like the Kosambian bhikkhus. We'd be more easy to instruct and we would have all those qualities of metta, having the same virtues, being generous and having the noble right view. We are not obstructed by disharmony, not obstructed by defilements. We're more similar to venerables Anuruddha, Nandi and Kimbala who meet every five days to discuss Dhamma all night. So we are keen to hear what we haven't heard before, keen to clarify what we may not have heard before and keen to learn, develop, and make progress towards the final goal. So when we have this, then we know we possess the strength of a person who possesses right view. So this is the sixth knowledge that is um, supramundane and not known by uh, ordinary people. So the seventh one is, again, a noble disciple considers thus. And so the strength of a person who possesses right view, when the Dhamma and discipline proclaimed by the Tathagata is being taught, he gains inspiration in the meaning, gains inspiration in the Dhamma, gains gladness connected with the Dhamma. He understands thus, I possess the strength of a person who possesses right view. This is the seventh and final knowledge attained by him that is noble, supramundane, not shared by ordinary people. 
in Pali, the key phrases are labati atavedang. So this is where you gain inspiration in the meaning. And then labati dhammavedang, gain inspiration in the dhamma. And then the final one is labati dhammupasahitang, pamojang. So gain gladness. Pamoja is the gladness connected with the dhamma. So connected with the strength of wanting to hear and learn Buddhist teachings, which was the sixth knowledge, when we possess the right view, we know it is an opportunity to gain inspiration in the meaning, inspiration in the Dhamma, and gladness connected with the Dhamma. We get happy doing so. And we know this is fundamental in whatever we, way we connect with the Dhamma. So whether it is through learning, listening, recitation, declaring, reflecting, developing our meditation, or living by the Dhamma. And we know that it is only through penetration of the meaning and the Dhamma that we have the opportunity for liberation. And so when we have this, we know that we possess the strength of a person who possesses right view. I mean, all these seven knowledges are very uplifting. Um, quite often people use these to check whether they have the fruit of stream entry. Because if you have this, the, these knowledges, you have these factors, then you're either ready to realize the fruit of stream entry or you have the fruit of stream entry or higher attainment and you're able to use these knowledges to actually uh, lift the mind to that palachitta. So the Buddha ends by saying, when a noble disciple is thus possessed of seven factors, he has well sought the character for realization of the fruit of stream entry. So this is exactly it, that when you have this, you're ready to realize the fruit of entering the stream of the Dhamma, of the noble path. And then he says, when a noble disciple is thus possessed of seven factors, he possesses the fruit of stream entry. So this next part confirms that one has the fruit of stream entry and can maintain that fruit of attainment as a concentration. So when we meditate on these seven knowledges, go deeper into the Dhamma behind these knowledges, it is then also possible to maintain the fruit of the attainment at that time. Uh, so what this is also telling us is this alpha if we have attained it's not active all the time if noble right view is not active then it's not active so that's why people always say if you have magapala you want the palachitta to be up you want it to be active you want it uh, to you want to have that at the particular time and that's why we also do our meditations in order for our palachitta if we have it to be up so after that, uh, that is what the Buddha said, or the Blessed One said, the bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. And uh, that's the end of the Kosambhya Sutta. So this, in and of itself, is a wonderful teaching. Um, there's actually much more to study and meditate on than what we've covered today, but you get a real grounding, at least in, in the, the, the minimum of, of this teaching. And we can revisit this sutta again at a later time to go deeper into it. But what's really important at this time is to acknowledge the strength of the Buddha's advice, that of the principles and qualities that enable us to live in harmony, which is the support for de developing the Noble Eightfold Path. What we need to do is build on what we have already learned from other suttas and what we practice and meditate on, and then apply them as the support towards developing the Noble Path. Because it's very clear that when we live in disharmony, we tolerate wrong speech, we get into disputes, and they can they don't have to be overt 
um, intense disputes like the Kosambian bhikkhus, they can be very passive aggressive ones. They can be uh, hidden. And when we live in that kind of disharmony, uh, it's actually very obstructive to the path. We have to see that it leads to decline. We, we can't even stand still. We actually decline. And so it's very imperative to put this particular teaching into practice or at least to investigate it further. So I just wanted to read some words um, that the Buddha said after leaving Kosambi. Again, it's from the Upakilesa Sutta. I find it's just very good to trigger what it was like for the Buddha and then what where he ended up. And so he says, when many voices shout at once, none considers himself a fool. Though the Sangha is being split, none thinks himself to be at fault. They have forgotten thoughtful speech. They talk obsessed by words alone. Uncurb their mouths, they bawl at will. None knows what leads him so to act. He abused me. He struck me. He defeated me. He robbed me. In those who harbour thoughts like this, hatred will never be allayed. For in this world, hatred is never allayed by further acts of hate. It is allayed by non-hatred. That is the fixed and ageless law. Those others do not recognise that here we should restrain ourselves. But those wise ones who realise this at once end all their enmity, breakers of bones and murderers, those who steal cattle, horses, wealth, those who pillage the entire realm. When even these can act together, why can you not do so too? If one can find a worthy friend, a virtuous, steadfast companion, then overcome all threats of danger and walk with him content and mindful. But if one finds no worthy friend, no virtuous, steadfast companion, then as a king leaves his conquered realm, walk like a tusker in the woods alone. Better it is to walk alone. There is no companionship with fools. Walk alone and do no evil at ease like a tusker in these woods. And so we've heard Buddha say words to this effect before, maybe even exactly some of these words before, that it's better to be alone than to associate with fools and to cultivate the wholesome. But when you hear the Buddha's words like that, you really wish you could give this to other people, like give it to the leaders of the world, give it to the people who are in, in deep dispute and, and wish for them to be well, wish for them to, to acquire the noble right view. But I, I thought this is very helpful uh, to, to listen to, to understand what the Buddha is saying about living with hate. Hate doesn't overcome hate, as we know. Only non-hate, like metta does. And so the Buddha, after leaving Kosambi, the Buddha made his way to the Eastern Bamboo Park, and that's where he met Venerables Anuruddha Nandi and Kimbila. And we have this account also from the Vinaya about what happened to him, where he spent the Vasa. And it's from the Palalayaka Gamanakata. So this is the chapter on Kosambi again in the Vinaya. The Buddha then instructed, inspired, and gladdened Venerable Anuruddha, Venerable Nandiya, and Venerable Kimila with the teaching. He then got up from his seat and set out wandering toward Palalayaka. When he eventually arrived, he stayed in a protected forest grove at the foot of an auspicious sal tree. Then while he was reflecting in private, the Buddha thought, previously when I was surrounding by those quarreling monks at Kosambi, I wasn't at ease, but now I'm alone, away from those monks. I'm happy and at ease. At that time, there was a large bull elephant who lived surrounded by a herd, by males and females, by juveniles and babies. 
He ate grass with the tips broken off and drank muddy water. Other elephants ate the branches that he had pulled down. And when he was immersed in a pool, the female elephants came rubbing their bodies against it. He considered this and thought, why don't I leave the herd and stay by myself? He then left the herd and went to Palalaika to where the Buddha was staying at the foot of the auspicious sal tree. And he attended on the Buddha using his trunk to set out water for drinking and water for washing and to clear the vegetation. He thought, previously when I was surrounded by other elephants, I wasn't at ease. But now I'm alone away from those elephants. I'm happy and at ease. And after considering his own seclusion or solitude and reading the mind of the elephant, the Buddha, Buddha uttered a heartfelt exclamation. The mind of this mighty elephant with tusk-like chariot poles agrees with the mind of the sage, since they each delight in the forest solitude. And when the Buddha had stayed at Palalaika, for as long as he liked, he set out wandering towards Savati, and he eventually arrived, and he stayed at Jaitha Grove at Anathasindika's monastery. So this is what happened uh, after he left Kosambi. Then he went uh, for the bus in the forest, and then he went back to Savati. So we're coming to the end of our session, but the last bit, just to complete this account encounter with the monks of Kosambi, we can end with the Buddha's verse from Dhammapada, verse 6. And he uttered this having returned to Savati. And it was in reference to the Kosambi bhikkhus. And the commentary tells us that um, the lay disciples of Kosambi, on learning the reason for the departure of the Buddha, refused to make offerings to the remaining bhikkhus. This made them realize their mistake and reconciliation took place amongst themselves. Still, the lay disciples would not treat them as respectfully as before until they owned up their fault to the Buddha. But the Buddha was away and it was in the middle of the vasa, so the bhikkhus of Kasambi spent the vasa in misery and hardship. At the very end of the vasa, the venerable Ananda and 500 bhikkhus approached the Buddha and gave a message from Anathapindaka and other lay disciples imploring him to return. So in due course, the Buddha returned to Jetavana Monastery in Savati. The bhikkhus followed him there. Uh, these are the bhikkhus from Kosambi. They fell down at his feet and owned up their fault. The Buddha rebuked them for disobeying him. He told them to remember that they must all die someday and therefore they must stop their quarrels and must not act as if they would never die. And then he spoke, spoke in verse, Parechana Bijananti. So there are others who do not understand. Maya metta yama mase. One day we must all die. Yecha tata Vijananti. But, for, but those who do not, but those who do understand this, tato samanti medaga, so settle their quarrels. And then at the end of that discourse, uh, all the assembled bhikkhus were establishing the fruit of stream entry. So that's a very nice way to end our session. But isn't that always the case that when you recollect the truth, um, that's when the squabbles and the disputes really come to an end. And it's really the higher truths that one reflects upon. Even something as simple as the first noble truth of suffering. If there is birth, then we are subject to old age, sickness and death. And so when you recollect even birth is suffering, aging is suffering, sickness is suffering, death is suffering, then all the things that we squabble and dispute about, they become very minor and almost petty in some cases. And so you realize what is there to 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 squabble about and this is my brother and sister and in this predicament and, and so it it cuts it all out it ceases at that point
let's first also have gratitude to the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha and any help we've had in preparing for this session, in conducting this session, in having this session. All the goodness of Kalyanamitas together. And we can share the merit with all our departed relatives, all sentient beings. May all beings be happy and well. May all beings be free from suffering. Blessings of the Triple Gem to all of you. Everyone Saturday night.